Welcome to Analyze Asia, a podcast dedicated to dissecting the pulse of business, technology, and media in Asia. I'm Carol In, and this week we are joined by Gareth Nicholson from South China Morning Post to talk about the China Internet Report 2020 that is fresh off the press, and of course to discuss the Chinese internet landscape in general. Now, Gareth is the deputy technology editor for SCMP, who has joined me to talk about the China AI report back in March. So, Gareth, first of all, welcome back to Analyze Asia. And since our last conversation, what have you been up to? Hi, Carol. It's good to be back. And as you mentioned, well, we've been very busy producing the China Internet Report 2020, but also covering a lot of the technology implications of obviously the recent COVID-19 outbreak, which is impacting all of us. So, yes, that's what we've been busy with in the last few months. All right, let's then just dive straight in. First of all, I found this report very easy to read. Despite its length and very informative, even though you know I already follow China tech very closely, so let's help our listeners understand or break down the report a little bit more. First of all, it's SEMP's third annual report, and what are some of the key sections or themes that you guys have always covered? Yes, Carol, as you mentioned, it's the third year that we've produced this report. I mean, I need to give a little disclaimer: I am not the author of this report. I currently head up the tech news desk. At SCMP, the report is produced by an independent division, SCMP Research, who also produced the earlier China AI report. But it is, you know, they primarily draw on a lot of the source material that we produce at the SCMP, you know, alongside a lot of data that they get from open sources as well to back up the research. And it's really intended as giving business professionals an insight into China's tech ecosystem. And to help them better understand some of the major trends and innovations going on in China's internet scene, because I think you know the global technology scene you know is quite accessible and has been for many years, but China's tech ecosystem is growing extremely fast, and a lot of people want to find out what's going on. And the kind of idea behind this report is to give people of a comprehensive and very accessible understanding of what's going on in China in the technology scene, all in one package. So that's really the thinking behind it, and it really covers every. Everything from fundraising and internet startups, all the way through all of the major important verticals such as e-commerce, 5G, artificial intelligence, semiconductor development—you name it—it's in this report. Hopefully, it's you know a very useful business intelligence tool. Yeah, I really think the report is for everyone because it, like、um, in the very beginning, it gives a overview of the Chinese landscape, and so for anyone who's a little bit unfamiliar, you can get a good sense of why it is. Important to keep an eye out for the Chinese internet space, but it also goes in depth, of course, into a lot of the specific trends and what's happening, and gives a lot of examples. So I really like how the report starts off with China in a glance, right? Which provides all of us with the general background. And there are so many graphics that I found very informative. For example, I didn't know that you know China has about three times the number of internet users at around nine hundred. Million in comparison to the U.S., which is at almost 300 million. Do you have any other, you know, interesting key facts and figures that you think our listeners would be surprised at, perhaps? No, I mean, I mean, I think you've hit the nail on the head there. 
Carol, with that observation. And actually, that slide in the report is a slide that has been in the report consistently over the three years. And that really you know, sets up the report and tells you a great deal because obviously China, with around 900 internet users, it's basically more than three times the number of users that the US has. And the mobile internet penetration rate is even higher. And this explains a lot of things about why the China technology scene is very interesting. That sheer size and scale of the market is what's driving a lot of the innovation and a lot of the growth trends, you know, going on in the China internet scene. And again, you know, one of the things that we try to do at the SEMP is explain what's going on and how those growth dynamics are developing. And I think to kind of dispel the notion that, you know, China is a copycat industry of what's going on in Silicon Valley. I think what we find increasingly today is a lot of internet innovation is being driven in China because of the sheer scale of that market. So that's why it's interesting. And those are the kind of trends that we try to capture in the report. 100%. And for those listeners who are interested in maybe looking at specific industries or verticals and look at Chinese companies to see what their innovations are, I think the two slides that talked about the key Chinese players versus U.S. players by key vertical. Those two uh, graphs I find very, very interesting. It really lays it out for anyone who is unfamiliar with the Chinese landscape. And I find it interesting that the competitiveness or basically how many major players there are in the different spaces, they seem to mirror each other a little bit, China and U.S., like for certain industries where it's very competitive, it's the same case for both China and the US. But of course, there are some differences too. And I really liked these two graphs in the report. Yeah, I think the thinking behind the, those charts is because people are familiar with the US and the Western tech scene. And obviously, there are similarities. Um, and so it's an easy way for us to map out you know, how China looks in comparison with the US um, and hopefully distill a lot of complex information and put it onto easily understandable slide. As you can imagine, e-commerce is not that different. E-commerce is e-commerce. It's people buying goods online. So you, you can... Again, live streaming and people are aware of, you know, game streaming of gaming has been very popular in the US with Twitch and things like that. But this slide would help you find those Chinese equivalents very quickly and easily. So that's the thinking behind those slides. Yes. Understood. When we're looking at who the key Chinese internet players are too, I think people are not going to be surprised at some of these names. However, there's one thing that I did notice is that for the past many years, when we talked about China internet, we often talked about, you know, BAT, BAT, of course, B is Baidu. But here we can see that in this year's report, Baidu by market cap has been pushed out of the top 10 Chinese internet companies. You know, instead, we have quite a few companies that have not yet even IPO'd, like ByteDance, like Didi, as well as a company that just announced their IPO after the report has been published, right? And Group or Ant Financial? Yes. And I think that, I mean, in terms of the report, we've been doing it for three years. And I think when we began the report, most people would have been familiar with uh, Baidu, Alibaba and Tencent. But what we have seen over the last two or three years is basically an evolution. We've seen new companies come through like ByteDance with TikTok and Doyin in China. And of course, they've been almost stolen a march on Tencent in the short video mark. But now, obviously, they're facing a lot of challenges in the US amid the current tensions between the US and China in the technology 
sector. As you said, we've had a lot of startups, uh, unicorns, and now many of them are coming to market. In fact, in the second half of this year, as you mentioned, we are expecting potentially even more IPOs and some perhaps mega IPOs. There has been speculation and uh, press about various companies coming to market. And very recently, Yes and Financial have confirmed that they are looking to list in Hong Kong and Shanghai. So a lot of activity, a lot of these startups are finally coming to market. Some of them are not, however. Some of the bigger companies in the artificial intelligence sector like SenseTime and Megvi, amid the tensions with the US and some of the blacklists and things like that, they've decided, it looks like they're deciding to hold off for now. But yes, it has been a very exciting time in terms of listings of tech companies. And it's, of course, going to be very rewarding for a lot of investment companies and VCs as well. And I see that Sequoia Capital has been extremely active in in the past year, which I would say is to no one's surprise. But I am not quite familiar with Shenzhen Capital Group, which seems to be the second most active uh, VC firm in, in China. Yeah, I, I don't really want to talk too much about particular investment activity of any particular VC firm. Mm-hmm. I, th- I think one of the key takeaways and something that I came to technology via finance, to be honest, and then via fintech, finally into pure tech. And I think, you know, when I first joined the technology desk at the SCMP, the market was very, very hot. Valuations were very high. And I think it was fair to talk about, you know, an acid bubble, if you like, in the China technology sector. And it reminded me a lot of the technology sector in America 20 years ago. I'm, I'm old enough to have lived through that as well. And, and in my early career as a journalist, obviously, I lived and worked through the dot-com boom and bust in the US. And I think been going through a similar phase in China, it's like a 20-year phenomenon. Um, and there's tr- been tremendous growth. And we're living through tremendous growth right now with a huge surge in digitization of, of the global economy. But I think what's happened in the last two years is a lot of the froth has been knocked out of that market. A lot of valuations have returned to more attractive levels. And obviously, it's probably a more attractive time for investors to get into the market and to invest in the next big thing. If you go back two years ago, valuations were sky high. I guess one of the sectors that fell off a lot was the sharing economy, things like shared bikes, rental bikes. That was a very hot sector. And that's something that actually has faded away and has fallen by the wayside. But you have a lot of new things coming through. For example, like live streaming is now a very exciting new sales channel. So we have seen some things fall away, but we have seen new things open up. But I think right now is an attractive time for venture capital to probably get into the market. You talked about how the valuations have calmed down a little bit. And I think COVID-19 has something to do with that as well, right? And so let's get into the meat of the report, which is talking about the key trends that you guys have identified for the, the year 2020. And of course, we have to talk about COVID-19 if we talk about 2020. So what are some of the key trends identified in the report? I will share the number one, which which is the lasting impact of COVID-19 on the China's tech sector. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, we're all living through COVID-19. We're actually doing this podcast from home. <laughs> so that I think we're all living through that. Absolutely, that has been one of the key findings in the report, that COVID-19 as a whole, it has basically accelerated a lot of the digital trends that were already ongoing in China and around the world, whether it's online education, online health, even things like e-commerce has had to adapt in the food delivery market. It's basically with more people living, working, educating, 
informing themselves from home, it has really kind of accelerated a lot of things that were already going on. And in fact, Jack Ma, who was speaking at the recent artificial intelligence conference, which was held online in Shanghai, basically said, you know, what was on the agenda from a kind of 10 to 20 year perspective has suddenly been accelerated to around about five years. So what you're seeing, like AI has been accelerated a lot, healthcare, education, they're some of the key sectors. And so really, that is a very dominant theme in this year's report. Well, the world knows that the Chinese government has played a huge role when it comes to combating COVID or in containing COVID. What about when it comes to the digital transformation as a result of COVID? What has the Ministry of Industry and Information Technology in China in response to COVID? Well, we've seen a number of areas. I mean, basically, they have talks very frequently now about you know advancing China's digital infrastructure. So that basically means you know building a lot more data centers, about digitizing the economy, everything from transport to power. And one of the key areas, of course, is the aggressive rollout of new 5G mobile technology in China as well. I think China has a target of basically installing around 500,000 new 5G base stations this year. And despite the impact of COVID, which actually, as you could imagine, was disruptive of the engineers who actually have to go out and install these 5G base stations. Nevertheless, China has kind of pushed ahead, given basically high-level policy backing to China's technology industry to forge ahead in many of these areas. Unfortunately, some of the this is colored slightly by the rising escalation of tensions between China and the US. So what we have seen is a falling away, unfortunately, of collaboration in some areas. And everybody will be aware of the current tension around Huawei, which is basically a 5G leader. So there are some issues to deal with. It's not all of a positive story. It's not all one-way traffic. But yes, the government, there's been no let up. And just yesterday, a vice minister from the China's MIIT reiterated the government's support for 5G and for more emphasis to be put on core fundamental science and research in China, particularly in the area of semiconductor technology. Yeah, and this leads way to the second and third trends identified in the report, the second being China's accelerated self-reliance for tech, and the third being the year of mass adaptation for 5G. Let's talk about China's path to technological self-reliance. How is China doing on this path? And what are some of the major obstacles it's being faced with right now? So I think it's probably best to separate this into two things. So a lot of what we've been talking about so far are sort of new technologies and consumer internet technologies, how people use technology in their everyday lives. But at the core of this is obviously old technology. It's not really old technology because semiconductor is very cutting edge and futuristic, but semiconductors have been around for a while, but they drive many things, whether it's PCs or smartphones, they are the lifeblood of many technologies. And I think really what has happened over the last two or three years, maybe because of rising rivalry with the US, is a kind of general dawning on China's top policy leadership that China to compete on an equal level with economies like the US, it needs to be self-sufficient in some of these core technologies, and particularly semiconductors. We did a special series at the SEMP on this semiconductor rivalry last year. And to cut a long story short, basically China is behind in semiconductor development. Companies like TSMC in Taiwan, with a lot of US help in the past, they are cutting edge and they have been supplying a lot of the chips to Chinese companies over the years. But I think what China has come to realize, if it wants to be truly competitive, so it's not just producing the smartphone that everybody wants, it actually needs to be able to produce independently and of its own ability, you know, the integrated circuits which drive those technologies. So what 
what we have seen is an increasing focus from the government to within China to focus on domestic semiconductor research and development. And we can talk a little bit more about that, but basically that's the situation. And I think if you listen to Xi Jinping over the last two or three years, many of his speeches, when he's talking about the economy, he is you know, repeatedly referred to this. And it's becoming more and more important, you know, as the US and China, unfortunately, drift apart, this issue is becoming more and more important. And you have seen a lot of recent development, for example, SMIC, which is perhaps the leading semiconductor firm in China, you know, has listed on the new starboard, attracted a lot of capital and actually tripled on its first day of listing. But I think the general consensus is that China is still behind because something like semiconductor research and technology, as many technologists knows, it takes years and years of development and expertise. It's not something that you can suddenly throw a lot of money at and overnight become competitive. It takes many, many years and, and, and lots of and a consistent focus. So it's something China is working on. I would regard it as a work in progress. It does have an edge in some areas like AI chips or application specific chips. But um, in general, semiconductor fabrication, China is definitely playing catch up. Yeah, it, it says in the report that a lot of experts believe that China is actually five to 10 years behind certain leading semiconductor manufacturers. And you mentioned AI chips, which some people believe might be a potential solution to closing this gap. It's just because AI is one of the technologies that is being pushed currently. And again, it received another push from COVID. For example, we saw artificial intelligence technology used in terms of telemedicine, but it was also used by, for example, experts who look at lung scans of patients. And there's now algorithms and technology which can assist those doctors and help them make much faster diagnoses based on an extensive database. So the algorithm, the computer can quickly pinpoint what the problem is with a particular patient and help the doctor to make a diagnosis. Things like AI chips, if you, without getting too technical, an AI chip kind of does one task and it can be designed to do one task. China actually has quite a very good capability in this area. And yes, with AI chips, CambraCon Technologies, which was another exciting Chinese startup, has also just recently listed on the new starboard in China, which has been designed as a sort of NASDAQ tech board in China. And so if AI becomes an increasingly important technology, then China could have an edge in this area. What is the impact of this move to self-reliance for, you know, Huawei and other Chinese companies? Well, I think the key, as I said before, it is actually a work in progress. You know, China is not there yet. It has many gifted technologists, scientists, but in, in some of these key technologies like semiconductor development, it, it is playing a catch-up game. And unfortunately, because of the US-China tech war, it has added a lot of urgency. We can talk more about Huawei later and 5G, something I'd like to talk about. But essentially, at the present time, Huawei being increasingly cut off from US origin technology. And then it started to rely more on its European partners and Asian partners in other countries. But then the US came back very recently with even more restrictions, basically saying companies which supply technology to Chinese technology companies such as Huawei, even if they're using machines from the US, they have to apply for a license. So this has actually put more pressure on TSMC not to supply Huawei. And in fact, what Huawei has been doing is stockpiling components as much as possible, but basically, you know, before they're completely cut off. But then it becomes a question of what are they going to do next? And they have to find a domestic alternative. I think 
think one thing to bear in mind, and this was said by a very important academic at the recent Artificial Intelligence Conference in Shanghai, is to catch up with the West and catch up with the likes of TSMC in Taiwan. You know, China is really going to have to focus on consistent, sustainable investment in the semiconductor industry. I think one thing we found when we did our deep dive report is that over the years, over the history of this industry, China has at times focused on domestic semiconductor development. But then when imports of superior products from overseas have been freely available, China has at times drifted away from domestic development. It has just been very happy to rely on these imported products. But I think increasingly with China becoming a big economic superpower and increasingly with the rivalry with the U.S., Obviously, there's a consciousness now that it needs to be more self-sufficient. But I think what academics and experts in the field are, are really asking for is, please just don't throw money at the problem um, in a kind of scattergun approach. It really needs a focused approach. China needs to identify the areas where it needs to make progress, what's absolutely essential and what is not, and direct long-term sustainable investment at these areas. And then hopefully China will be able to catch up eventually. That's right. And you know what, let's jump into talking about 5G then, because I would really like to learn more about um, what's happening in this area as well. So is 2020 the year of mass adaptation for 5G in China? I'm not sure if it's accurate to say mass adoption, but I think it is the year of 5G in China. And we will see the rapid uptake of 5G and they're already extremely busy. The, the Chinese service providers, China Unicom, China Telecom, they're already rolling out a very aggressive build out of 5G base stations. I think it is the year of 5G in China. And basically, despite whatever obstacles are thrown in the path of Huawei overseas, I think we're all aware of its troubles in the US. The UK has recently decided to take it out of its networks over a 10 year period. We're going to get a decision from Germany very soon. Despite those overseas troubles, I think in the China market, which after all is Huawei's biggest market, we are going to see an aggressive rollout. We're going to see the price of 5G phones hopefully come down. And then it's going to be a very exciting time. You know, I was talking to a colleague of mine who's covered telecoms for over 20 years. And he basically made the point to me that if you think about 3G and 4G, which was a kind of a big step up from what the networks were capable of before, 5G is a similar kind of a big step up in terms of latency the speed of data transfer capacity, we could see entirely new technologies emerge. And 3G and 4G was, in a way, the advent of the app economy. And it's a kind of like what's coming next. It might be something we haven't even seen. I think everybody's obviously expecting to be able to uh, download movies and watch them faster, to send movies to each other via mobile phones. But I think really where the excitement might come is, is in the industrial internet and how 5G allows companies and businesses to completely re-engineer their business operations. Can you talk about some of the potential use cases for 5G? Yeah, I mean, I think there are many use cases and some of the, I've actually already mentioned some of them. If you think about healthcare, even during COVID, 5G was actually used in China for medical authorities to send very detailed CT scans of patients affected by COVID. And it was basically because of the capacity and the speed that 5G offers it. These scans, which are incredibly detailed, very high resolution could be sent very quickly. So that's the kind of thing it, it enables. Towards the end of last year, we visited Huawei's campus in Dongwan in China, and they have a 5G exhibition hall. And for example, they had a, a trial whereby somebody was remotely controlling a digger at an enormous mine. And because of the clarity and the resolution that 5G affords, the mining could actually be done remotely. A huge, you know, heavy digger 
weighing hundreds of tons. And because, you know, it'd be far too clumsy in the past and not accurate enough. But because of 5G, because of the connectivity, because of the resolution and the detail at the technology affords, a miner could actually control that digger remotely. Again, you can think about it. It it will just enable many, many IoT devices which rely on very fast speed. Another application will be autonomous driving, which we can talk a a bit more about later. It's all about speed of data transfer and what that will enable. Yeah, I'm just looking at, you know, the number of subscribers projected for 5G in China and the estimated market size. I guess China is and will be the largest market for 5G, isn't it? And also I see that Chinese consumers have the highest intention and the highest willingness to pay to upgrade to 5G. I think again, Carol, that's one of the interesting things about China is just the the willingness of Chinese people to adopt technology very quickly. I think that's a very big culture cultural difference between China and the West. People are not as suspicious of technology and they see it as a very easy and efficient means of improving their everyday lives. So people are very willing to jump into new technology. I think in the West, we've seen some conspiracy theories, even crazy things like 5G causes COVID-19. I mean, maybe that's too dramatic. It's not that big of a difference, but really there's a lot of excitement because Chinese people in general are very willing to adopt new technology. And I think in our report, we have some numbers, we're looking for the market size to hit around 70 to 85 billion dollars in 2020 with around 170 million 5G subscribers. So that's already a very big number this year. Yeah, I think that's going to have huge implications as well. Just the sheer size of the 5G market, its growth, etc. is going to really propel the evolution of these applications and use cases in, in China. I think that's going to be a very, very exciting thing to watch. Just to add on, I mean, that's another reason why China is interesting because historically it was a more mobile first digital economy. People went straight to mobile. They didn't go via the PC route. So that's why China has always been an exciting smartphone and uh, mobile technology market. And honestly, I was just going to say that it makes sense because of how cheap plans are in, in China, how affordable these Chinese phones, even 5G's phones are. You know, there are obviously a lot of new phones that came out. All major Chinese brands have came out with their versions of, of 5G phones. And I, I think that they're just going to, of course, get better and cheaper to help everyone speed up adoption of 5G. Yeah, absolutely. I think we need to mention a few of the names. So, of course, we've mentioned Huawei, Xiaomi, Vivo, Oppo, and ZTE are all going to have 5G phones. I think in terms of the pricing at the moment, they're still quite pricey. And I, but I think the expectation is that with the rollout of more services, the price of the phones will come down. I think Xiaomi's CEO and founder, Lei Jun, was a little bit disappointed initially when he announced you know, their flagship 5G phone. I think he wanted the price to be lower, but he's kind of optimistic that it will come down with time. Like any new technology, the first iteration is usually expensive, but over time prices do come down. But just to note, even the prices right now in comparison to a non-5G, say Apple phone, it's still quite affordable, right? It's only about over 300 USD or between 2,000 to 3,000 RMB, which in my opinion is already very affordable for a piece of new technology. Absolutely. As I mentioned before, I think the excitement level, it's just around, you know, how people are going to use this new technology and what kind of innovation it will drive. If you think about 3G, 4G, it was the advent of the app economy. I mean, who knows what's coming next, how people will use this new technology. Oof, excited for the future to unfold. (laughs) 
And then I can see that the fourth trend is about live streaming. And it specifically talks about live streaming being in the third phase. And now for our listeners who are unfamiliar, can you talk a little bit about what's, you know, first, second, and the third phase that China is currently in? Sure. I think rather than bombard the listener with data and numbers, I think it's best to kind of think of it like this. Live streaming beginning, I guess it was essentially thought of as something that had a lot to do with teen culture and in kind of beauty products and makeup and lipstick. So it was aimed at millennials, I guess, uh, young people, perhaps a female population. And it was a segment of the overall e-commerce market. What we have seen, particularly during COVID, is a huge acceleration of the importance of live streaming as a new marketing and sales channel. And what we have seen is it move from certain niche segments right across traditional industries, such as even banking and travel, who are now using live streaming as a very key sales and marketing channel. Even James Liang from Ctrip did a live streaming session and he sold millions of dollars worth of trips and travel products. So what we're seeing is basically the consumer, as they're consuming more online, finding this live streaming format very, very attractive. What do you think will be, say, the fourth phase? Like what's next, you know, now that live streaming has already penetrated all the different industries in China? Will it be maybe how 5G impacts live streaming? Or what do you think would be the future of live streaming then? I don't have a crystal ball, but I think what we will see is just this continued adoption of live streaming as a very major marketing and sales channel. We did do a story recently actually on our desk, which was more of a sanity check. It is a huge trend. I think what you will see is live streaming move across more industries. It's being used increasingly by finance and even banks. And as you mentioned, with 5G, that will enable more interactive, more sort of immersive forms of live streaming. There has been some question marks raised, though. I mean, I think obviously in some of these live streaming sessions, it's kind of influencers and key opinion leaders who are well known. I think everybody's aware in China of some of the key figures like the Lipstick King. You just see, sorry, <laughs> it's my pronunciation. <laughs> no People worries. like that. Some of these very popular figures, they come at a price, they have a fee. And oftentimes, a lot of the goods in those sessions are discounted. And so some people are saying, actually, live streaming, maybe it has more importance in terms of long-term brand building and brand recognition rather than pure short-term sales. But clearly, you know, some industries have seen a very big boost in sales from live streaming. I mean, the jury's still out on some of these areas, but definitely in the last 12 months, live streaming has come through. Even gaming, there's a lot more excitement. The gaming live streamers now in China who are following on from the likes of Twitch in the US. It's just suddenly a lot more excitement around this sector. Yeah, it's definitely being very much hyped about in China. But like you said, a lot of the traffic is going to all the top, you know, KOLs or key opinion leaders, whereas a lot of the long tail of the live streamers there might not actually be getting so much attraction despite how hot everyone think live streaming is but i was also surprised to see for example live stream being adapted in the finance industry i remember you know one day opening up my alipay app and then they have a section on uh, investments and then i just saw adverts of you know live stream sessions with fund managers so that you could learn more about their investment strategies and why you should invest in their fun. And I, I found that fascinating. 
Yeah, absolutely. I think the way to think of that for me again, um, sorry, I'm giving away my age, but um, <laughs> for me, live streaming is a development with e-commerce and the internet age. It's something that we saw in the 80s with cable television when the likes of QVC and cable shopping channels came along. But with live streaming and the modern age, it's a lot more interactive. It's a lot more of an immersive experience. And as you mentioned, the finance industry, I used to work in the investment industry. And a big part of the investment industry is about something called investment education, helping the customer to better understand how to invest their wealth. There's many ways to engage with a potential customer. You can have a video, you can have a written product or a so-called white paper or a piece of you know investment or product advice. But if you think of live streaming and you have an expert who can interact with the customer, who can answer their questions, who can demonstrate, it's a very interactive and engaging way to connect with the customer. I think, yes, I think that is an area where live streaming we could see a lot more of in future. And talking about investments, the fifth and last trend mentioned in the report is Chinese technology companies coming back home to IPO to to list in in Hong Kong as well as in mainland China instead of say you know New York Stock Exchange or Nasdaq which was the golden standard before. Yes, and I think we need to dissect this into a few different factors. Obviously, amid increasing US-China tension, I think it makes a lot of sense for a lot of these leading Chinese tech companies which have had only US listings, NASDAQ listings, to come back to Hong Kong. As you may know, Hong Kong recently relaxed some of its rules around certain areas like weighted shares, made some reforms, perhaps became a bit more welcoming. But for many of these technology companies, I think from a capital efficiency, just from a point of view of being closer to their home base of investors, it makes a lot of sense for them now to have dual listings. And really, we've seen Hong Kong become a bit of a growth market again in terms of many of these technology companies coming back to Hong Kong. But we also also have the starboard in China, which is seen as like a kind of NASDAQ type of board. And that's going to encourage a lot of companies to go public in China itself. So yeah, there's the two things. And I think there are a variety of reasons for this. It's not just one simple reason. And we also, of course, know about the scandals. Uh, one of the most well-known one, of course, is the and coffee scandal. Do you think stories like these will also prompt Chinese companies to delist and then list back home in China? Yes, but I think we need to put the accounting scandals in some sort of perspective. There have been some high profile accounting scandals and indeed the US is tightening its listing rules. So that is deterring some Chinese companies. If you go back in time around about 10, 12 years ago, there was a similar spate of accounting scandals, which created a lot of investor uncertainty around some Chinese companies. And then things were tightened up. We have seen some high profile cases recently, such as luck in coffee. But I think we also have to remember that accounting scandals are not unique to Chinese companies. They affect companies from all around the world. And there have been many accounting scandals over the years in very big Western firms, Indian firms, you name it. But because of escalating tensions between the US and China, the US perhaps become on balance a little less welcoming. And China is a more natural home now that they have the starboard and also Hong Kong for some of the bigger tech companies. Yeah. And I, I think that only makes sense as well to be closer to their users. So people who actually, you know, understand how their products products work, are more familiar, and also there's no language barrier when it comes to investments, I think that would be beneficial as well. It's a kind of coming home phenomenon and just being closer to those people who understand and actually use the product and have lived with it and are very familiar with the companies and what they do and life in China, kind of the problems that some of these technology companies solve, it, it, it kind of makes sense. 
That's right. Just like how I heard a lot of conversations about, you know, Chinese drinkers of Luckin coffee or non-drinkers saying that, well, if they were an investor, they they would not have fallen into the Luckin coffee trap or would have been skeptical to begin with because they live in China, where all of the Luckin coffee stores were based. Luckin coffee is a strange one, though. If you think about it, it was a challenger to Starbucks in China. It's really a coffee company more than a technology company. You know, it did experiment with kind of different delivery technologies. Actually, delivery, uh, food delivery. I, I would like to talk about that segment if we can in this session before we end, because that has been a segment that's gone through a lot of change during COVID nineteen. But um, certainly, the Looking Coffee case has not helped Chinese companies in the U.S. currently. But I just wanted to say one thing, though. I do think coffee is overpriced, so I do welcome more challengers to Starbucks in in China. And about、uh, food delivery, I、um, definitely ordered one too many food deliveries during COVID、uh, when I was stuck in in Shanghai, and have seen a lot of changes just in the few months. But what are some of the trends that you find interesting for food delivery? So I mentioned earlier that the sharing economy is certainly which. Which has featured in our previous internet reports is something that has taken a hit. I mean, who wants to share a room or any kind of device with somebody else if they've been infected? It's just kind of unfortunately has impacted that sharing economy in China and around the world, where there was building excitement and it had been a strong area. But one of the Beneficiaries, if you like, of COVID nineteen has been the delivery industry, but it hasn't been a one way street. COVID nineteen, we, we've done a lot of interviews with delivery companies, whether it's Elami, Meituan, Food Panda, companies like that, and we recently interviewed one of the founders of Gojek as well. And it's been a big challenge, mainly in terms of logistics, also ensuring the safety of drivers, the safety of consumers. But it has driven a lot of innovation. So, for example, we've seen a lot of the technology improve in terms of you know finding where drivers are at any particular time. We've seen innovations in terms of how food is delivered. So, for example, we've seen companies experiment with UV light to scan food to see if there's any level of infection. We've seen things like unfinished meals. So that's in, rather than a semi-finished meal, rather rather than delivering the full food, you can deliver a package of food where the the raw ingredients are there, the seasonings are there, and all the customer has to do is then put those into a pan. And fry it, and it's ready. So we've seen a lot of that going on. It's been a very fascinating industry to follow. That's been one of the game changers during COVID. That's right, which ties back to our first trend. I, I really like how everything comes full circle, and I see that quite a few pages of the report is dedicated to list some of the interesting startups, top funded Chinese startups, in in a lot of the different spaces. Are there any particular startups that you really think we should pay attention to, or that you would like to、uh, talk a little bit? About well, it's really actually, Carol. It's been a bit of a, a mixed bag, I think, for startups. We've seen a lot of these companies that are, you know,、uh, frequently appear in the headlines. They're actually maturing. I think COVID nineteen has been a challenge for many of them. Many of them would argue they've always been focused on profit, but a lot of startups kind of focus on gaining market share at a kind of high price. I was going to say at any price, but, but that's probably not true. But a lot of startups have to focus on gaining market share. But what we've seen is a renewed focus on profitability, a kind of reanalysis of what it means to have a long-term. Sustainable business. The Chinese startups where there has been excitement. Didi clearly ride-hailing has been one of the industries affected by COVID nineteen. There's been a lot more attention on the cleanliness of cars. 
We've seen plastic dividers installed in cars and things like that. It's also been trying to expand around the world, particularly in Latin America, as the Chinese ride-hailing market becomes more saturated. But Didi's also had to work through a number of safety issues. You know, a couple of headlines and, and sad stories about some passengers being killed about a year ago. And Didi's had to kind of work through a lot of safety issues in terms of vetting of drivers to reassure customers. In fact, the whole ride-hailing industry has. It's not just Didi Uber as well. So what we've seen is a lot of these businesses mature. Gojek and Grab have been going head-to-head in Southeast Asia, moving from being pure ride-hailing companies to becoming bigger platform companies that offer a range of services and even potentially financial services as well. That's a very interesting area. Mobile payments, of course, in a place like Indonesia, where historically many people have been underbanked, don't have access to savings and investment products. You know, these kind of digital platforms where you know many people have a smartphone, may not have a bank account. You can only guess at the potential for growth going forward. So there's a lot of exciting things going on in China itself. As you mentioned, we have the starboard. So there's a lot of exciting things going on. As a general takeaway, it's kind of rather than get into individual companies, what, what we've seen is, as I said, valuations have become more reasonable. Companies have matured. There's been an increased focus on profitability vis-a-vis market share. So yes, it, it's kind of been the maturation of a lot of these startups. That was my last question for the report, but I know that we've been talking about the free version of the China Internet Report 2020. And there's, of course, a pro version. Can you talk about what's more in the pro version? Or if you can provide us with just a little sneak peek as well into it? Sure. This year, there are two versions of the report. The light version is available free of charge. And that gives you a very quick snapshot of the key findings of the report. It will give you some of those key statistics about the size of China's internet market, the internet penetration levels, some of the key segments, some of the key startups, some of the key investors. And kind of overview of some of the exciting things going on with 5G, China's focus on domestic self-sufficiency and core technologies. Basically, the issues we've talked about today, the pro version of the report is a lot bigger. I guess if you think the, the light version is around about 20 to 30 slides, the pro version is around about 120 slides, I believe. It gives you a much deeper dive. It has all of the data in there, many, many, many charts, some of which have been produced with the help of our award-winning graphics team. And basically, I honestly think it's a very valuable valuable business tool for those people who want to understand China's technology sector in more depth. I also just have one more question. What is something that you are most excited about when we look into the future, maybe for, you know, the China Internet Report 2021? What do you think would be something that would be mentioned there that we're not seeing right now if we haven't you know, mentioned that already. Yeah, I guess there's two things that really interest me. One of them is artificial intelligence, which we have done a separate report on. It's really, you know, this is in a technology that has been around for a long time. It's been talked about for a long time. But I think what we're seeing now is an increasing adoption of AI. People are coming to terms with it, where it can help. And, you know, some of the subsections of AI, like robotic process automation, which is literally a computer doing the kind of repetitive white collar labor, you know, that would take a kind of big team of back office people going through forms and um, a very inefficient and long-winded process. Suddenly, computers are being developed, which can do that much quicker, much faster. It's freeing people up to do more higher-valued, interesting jobs. That kind of transformation, if you like, of industry by AI technologies is something I'm very excited about. And we've interviewed some of the leading practitioners in that area recently, companies like UiPath. It's a very interesting area. And, And then I guess the other one is just, you know, 5G and what it might enable going forward. Again, it's about the transformation 
transformation of the economy, just figuring out you know how it may may actually re-engineer many many companies, how they work. I think an early example, as I mentioned, is just how 5G because of the data capabilities, you know, just the high resolution, how we could actually improve healthcare. So those are the things that interest me. How technology actually helps people in their everyday lives. 100. And I would encourage everyone to give the light version, at least a light version, a read, and I guarantee that you'll learn something new, no matter how much you already know about the Chinese internet space. I hope you found our conversation helpful, and that you can, you know, download the report at research.scmp.com. And before I end the conversation, Gareth, final question: Any books, movies, anything that you like to recommend that made an impact on your work or personal life lately? You've kind of caught me by surprise, Carol. <laughs> Not really. I just think I alluded to my past career. Began my life as a journalist. I actually was covering technology around about 20 years ago during the first internet boom, which saw many companies. In America, being created like America Online, like Amazon, like Netscape, like internet browsing firms, and for me, I'm kind of living through. I feel as though now with China, living through another period like that of rapid growth. So for me, actually, just living and working through current times and watching basically the creation of companies, which may be the Amazons of tomorrow and the Apples of tomorrow, that's what's making my life exciting right now, and that's why I find this report and actually my job very interesting and rewarding. And if our listeners would like to hear more from you, to read more of the reports from the Technology Desk at SEMP, where can they find you? Yes, well, you can find our technology news coverage at SEMP.com. And then you just navigate to the technology sector. On that page, we have links to the China Internet Report, where you can go to the homepage, and it gives you information on how to download the report, how to register and buy the pro report. So all of the information is on scmp.com. Me personally, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm always willing to connect with people who are interested in technology or indeed China. And so you can find me there. And you can find us、um, on Twitter as well at analyzeasia.com. And if you want to listen to more of our episodes, for example, my conversation with Gareth on the China AI Report 2020 back in March,、um, you can find all of these episodes available at any and all of the. Podcasting platforms like iTunes Podcasts, SoundCloud,、uh, even Himalaya,、um, etc. So, thank you so much, Gareth, for coming onto the show again, and I look forward to our conversation next time. Thanks, Carol. I enjoyed it. Thank you.